Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Today we've got um, both an old friend and a public intellectual of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. We created this public intellectuals program with a view of getting academics to step out of the narrow world of academia and write and speak and do interviews about China generally. And this book is really an outgrowth of that. In fact, it, it credits in its introduction or it's forward, I guess. It credits both the Public Intellectuals Program and Jan Barris for being uh, an inspiration for the book. So um, obviously the National Committee is pleased to have have uh, kind of pushed Carl on the road to writing book, which doesn't mean we endorse everything in this book, I should say, since you'll hear as we discuss this, it's a, it's a very provocative book and, and in a lot of ways, unbelievably timely that we're doing the program now, because in a lot of ways, this book was published before the recent consolidation. But when you read it, you can see that Carl was predicting actually what was going to occur. He also predicts um, some very dark scenarios for China. But let me not go on too long on my introduction, but it is really a provocative book. He will stay around after the talk to autograph the book, which is available outside. Carl, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for being a public intellectual of the committee. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, as, as I said, I, I, I should thank uh, you know Steve and Jan. This uh, PIP program was really instrumental in uh, leading me to sort of write books for a broader audience. Uh, and uh, I want to thank uh, Margot Landman for putting together the event today, and to Dorsey and Whitney for providing this venue. Um, in the two-sentence summary of the book is that China's decades-long reform era is ending, and that economically, ideologically, and politically, China is moving into a new post-reform era that differs dramatically from what we've known since the late 1970s. In this talk, I'm going to set out the broad overall argument and explain why I'm worried. But I'm also going to specifically focus on the political dimension of the book, since that's what I think many people are interested uh, most in as a result of the developments of recent weeks. And I'm going to explain how China is experiencing erosion of its reform era political norms and institutions. But first, let me start with a general overview. For the first three decades of the People's Republic of China, the Maoist era, China looked like this. Economically, it was stagnant. Uh, pervasive rural poverty and a failed state-run economic model had left the country by 1978 with a per capita GDP lower than India or Zaire. Ideologically, it was relatively closed to the outside world. Not only were Western capitalist and Soviet revisionist practices decried, but all religions and Chinese tradition itself were ruthlessly suppressed in the name of socialist modernization. And politically, it was unstable. Power was highly concentrated in a single leader, Mao. On the level of elite politics, he had a tendency to purge his designated successors, one who died after a beating in a prison cell, the other who perished in a mysterious plane crash in Mongolia while apparently fleeing to the Soviet Union after a failed coup. And within society at large, Mao preferred ruling through disruptive street movements and political campaigns rather than regular institutions of governance. Communist Party and government institutions themselves dissolved during the decade-long period of chaos known as the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976. For the second some odd three years, uh, the three decades of the People's Republic of China, the reform era, it looked like this. Economically, China experienced decades of rapid economic growth. Market reforms launched in the 1980s led China to average 10% GDP growth per year over three decades. Uh, and in the 1980s, this was a broad-based growth that lifted all boats, particularly the rural poor. Ideologically, China opened up. In Deng Xiaoping's famous words, it doesn't matter if a cat is uh, black or white, as long as it catches mice, it's a good cat. Within the Chinese state and within the Chinese schools, uh, this gave a whole host of actors latitude to freely import concepts and practices from abroad. 
the party also backed out of people's lives. The ideological fervor of the Mao era faded. Religion came back. Mosques and churches reopened. Socialism began to fade into a series of meaningless slogans recited on state television. And privately, as long as you didn't cross that key line of attempting to organize politically, you had a broad degree of freedom to do what you wanted in your private life. And politically, Chinese party's leaders supported the emergence of a range of partially, and I underline partially, institutionalized political norms, in large part to address the chaos and instability that they had experienced under the Maoist era. Uh, these were not political liberalization, I have to underline that. Particularly after Tiananmen in 1989, Beijing drew a hard line at anything resembling that. Rather, the rules of the one-party political game simply became somewhat more predictable and organized. A sampling of those types of partially institutionalized political norms would include designation by Deng Xiaoping of his next two successors, ensuring an unusual period of elite stability. Development of internal norms regarding the regular promotion, retirement, and succession of top party leaders. One such example was the 1982 Constitution, which established the two-term limit on the Chinese presidency. Partial depoliticization of the bureaucracy, with party authorities retreating from an effort to manage the day-to-day -day affairs of state and turning that responsibility over to technocrats within the bureaucracy. Steady institutional differentiation with party leaders, top party leaders, exercising more clearly defined portfolios. And emergence of bottom-up input institutions, local elections, administrative law channels, and a partially commercialized media airing popular grievances, which gave citizens a limited degree of voice into the political process and contributed to state legitimacy. In short, the reform era was marked by rapid economic growth, a degree of ideological openness, and relative political stability marked by this partial political institutionalization. Now we're entering a new period. All three of those things are ending. We can debate over the precise dates. Some of them are secular trends that extend back over a decade, but they have become particularly pronounced since 2012. Economically, China is undergoing a seismic shift. Its era of rapid growth is starting to come to an end. Optimists will point to secular and dem demographic shifts in the economy that will lead it to follow the paths of Japan and Taiwan and gradually plateau at a much lower growth level. Pessimists will flag a series of what they see as unsustainable pressures building in the Chinese economy that they think could lead to a more dramatic hard landing, including the debt buildup in debt levels, which surged from 150% of GDP in 2008 to 250% now. Ideologically, China is gradually turning in on itself again. This is showing up both in society, there's a renewed popular interest in Confucianism, a proliferation of, the one I like is the proliferation of faux Han Dynasty's clothing for uh, college graduation ceremonies, but it's also showing up in state actions, such as Xi Jinping's 2013 visit to the birthplace of Confucius, and his declaration that the Communist Party, after having spent the better part of the 20th century trying to wipe out traditional Chinese beliefs and religions, needs to embrace them and fuse them with nationalism and Marxist-Leninism into sort of a new state ideology. Now, of course, part of this is just a renewed interest on the part of citizens, ordinary Chinese citizens in their own culture. Many people are quite understandably beginning to question, now that China is risen, shouldn't we perhaps take more of an interest in our own culture and our own traditions rather than simply absorbing stuff from overseas as everyone was doing in the 80s and 90s? But another element that's, that's, that's taking place in society, but another element is to look at what the state is doing, and it's a more strategic effort on the part of Chinese state leaders to deploy Chinese tradition as a shield against what they regard as foreign values, particularly Western ones. There's a sense that the uh, collapse of communism as an ideology has left a spiritual and a moral vacuum that has permitted a wide range of foreign ideologies, from underground Christian house churches to Western liberal ideals, to infiltrate and undermine China. And so the sense that what's, what's coming out of Beijing is that these need to be struggled against with a more clear reassertion of China's own cultural and historical identity. And so you're seeing that blow up in a range of areas, such as this effort to sort of think about uh, education, think about you know, textbooks, and do we need to rectify them to get, you know, get rid of Western ideas. One more point on this, which is when you assert a more clear and closed narrative of what it means to be Chinese, it has another effect as well, which is amplifies tensions with the people in China's borderland regions who fit least well into that new narrative. Uh, that's precisely why when you see this effort to push patriotic education in Hong Kong uh, schools, 
you start to see the counter effect of Occupy Central and this sort of radicalization of the identity among young Cantonese-speaking youth. Similarly, you see the effort of central authorities to sort of push more tightly on the religious and cultural identity of Uyghur groups in Northwest China, reaction, you end up getting Islamic radicalization. Or when you look at sort of what's the push to in Zhejiang province to sort of, you know, worried about both unregistered and registered uh, Christian groups, you start to see a range of conflicts with believers there. None of these are imminent threats to stability. It's a couple of tens of millions of people here and there uh, in each, but there's, there's an indication of how things are starting to shift compared with just a decade or two ago. Now, let me move on to the political dimension. This is the element that's of most interest right now because it directly intersects with what you're seeing play out at the National People's Congress, which is meeting right now. Politically, what you're seeing is a breakdown in what we thought were the elite norms and practices. So since Xi's rise in 2012, he's taken apart, or he's broken with many of those norms that had built up in the early reform era. The fall of Zhou Yongkong marked the breakdown of tacit party norms against targeting former top leaders who had served on the Politburo Standing Committee and their families after leaving office. Uh, similarly, a range of these ill-defined leadership groups, the Lindao Xiaozu, over the economy, over national security, those have begun to sprung up and they've formed, uh, you know, they've managed to reconcentrate power, which was once divided among a wider range of party authorities, reconcentrated in the hands of Xi Jinping himself. Similarly, a longstanding official aversion to anything resembling, resembling a cult of personality is being abandoned as you start to see this more and more of an attention focused on Xi Jinping himself in the state media. And of course, within the last couple of months, you've seen others begin to go as well. So at last fall's 19th Party Congress, party leaders departed from recent practice and avoided naming a clear political successor to Xi Jinping to the Politburo Standing Committee. And uh, simultaneously, they changed party ideology uh, to throw the Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era into the party charter. And that's a complex subject. But the key thing that that does is it bounces Xi up to a level ahead of Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin in importance, arguably past Deng Xiaoping as well, and using uh, language that clearly carries some resonance with the Maoist era. Now, specifically, what that's going to do over the next couple of years is to give much greater scope for folks within the party bureaucracy and state media to begin to identify the party with Xi Jinping personally and do things such as produce documentaries and shows illustrating how Xi himself embodies all of the ideal characteristics that party officials should seek to replicate. Actually, and I was just poking around at this right before this event, I, actually you should start taking a look at some of the documentaries that are coming out of CCTV and Xinhua, the Amazing China documentary, which is now showing in theaters in China, or the one in English for English speakers, Time of Xi. That's actually an English language that's come out. Very heavy attention on just Xi Jinping himself. Similarly, that village where Xi Jinping spent time during the Cultural Revolution, that's become a pilgrimage site for the party faithful, and you're starting to see these terms that are surrounding him, the people's leader, that's popped up in the state press. And there was one over-eager local Guizhou paper that actually went and endowed him with the term great leader, which was the Maoist term, and they got slapped down eventually for that. Okay, now, of course, everyone's focused on what's happened in recent weeks, namely the announcement that the CCP has now already been amended, uh, the Constitution to erase the term limits uh, on China's presidency, thereby paving the way for Xi Jinping to serve for decades into the future. And in my, in my, this was almost like a footnote to the party plenum that happened in the fall. Uh, once you started to see some of those developments happen with respect to Xi Jinping's role as general party, general secretary of the party, which is where all the power is, it was almost like clear that it was going to be obvious that the constitution was going to be amended to deal with this problem of the, of the two-term limit on the presidency. But I think it's easier for Americans to sort of think about you know, focus on removing the two-term limit on the presidency than it is to think about Xi Jinping thought being added to the party charter. If we, if we think about that first one, we're like, well, what if the party, what if the two-term limit was lifted on Trump, what would, and react to that rather than the earlier one? But anyway, so that was the people focused on it. Anyway, there's one other aspect of the constitutional changes that I think is worth uh, paying attention to, and that's the repartyization of the bureaucracy. Remember that the early reform era had seen the party back out of day-to-day -day management of state affairs. This now seems to be eroding as well. The amendments actually did something very interesting, a little tweak that gave a clear nod in this direction when they, they shifted. The reference to the party wasn't previously was just in the preface. Now it's been kicked into the text of the document itself. 
Or you could look at the uh, creation of a national supervisory commission. And what this does is to create a new body. It's effectively the party's disciplinary inspection committee in new form as an oversight organ for all state employees. Again, previously, the party's disciplinary committee had the ability to go after party members. And what this amendment and the corresponding legislation is likely to do is to create a channel for the discipline inspectors to go after anyone receiving a state salary. And so that's potentially university officials, SOE employees, and a much wider range of people. My understanding is the same shift's happening with respect to the propaganda apparatus. They're going to be moving into sort of a much more direct role in controlling the media. But I, I need to watch to see what the developments are with that. Anyway, watch this, because this is precisely how this partial distinction between the party and the state that's built up over the course of the reform era collapses to a much tighter unity. So in summary, China is ideologically closing up, it's economically slowing down, and those partially institutionalized political norms of the past decade are decades are starting to buckle. And the question is, why is this happening? Why, at least on the political side, are these norms coming undone? The answer that I give in the book is that because of China's failure to build alternative institutions during the reform era, arising from its dogged adherence to one-party rule, they sort of one step forward, one step back in terms of political changes within since 89, Xi Jinping finds himself driven back to yet older methods to make change happen. And you put yourself in Xi Jinping's shoes. If you're a committed believer in the party's continual political dominance, if you sense that China is slouching towards crisis, if you viscerally reject any move towards political liberalization, if you're coming to power in 2012, 2013, seeing a frozen and factionalized political system within the party itself, what do you do? I think you do exactly what he's doing. I think you resort to the levers that you do have. You try to centralize power in your own hands. You launch political, politicized purges of your rivals. You cultivate a populist image uh, among the masses. You, you know, try to ramp up the power of the party itself to, to, to increase control over an unwieldy bureaucracy. And you promote an ideological shift back towards nationalism and cultural identity. Now, what does all this mean? Some observers have argued that this means she is a new Mao. I don't go that far. There are still some core reform era norms that haven't yet been broken. The big one being resort to bottom-up social mobilization, the mass movements that characterized the Maoist era. And unless you get that, unless you see that, you really can't conclude that she is a new Mao. But the core point is that the reform era is unwinding. And once you conclude that the political rules of the game, the core political rules of the game that have governed the last several decades are coming undone, the operative question starts to be, what are the next ones that are going to start to go? And just to be clear, while the story I'm telling above, the political story uh, of political erosion inside China's one-part Leninist one-party system, I'm actually not bashing China. The idea that political norms are breaking down has parallels in a wide range of other countries, including democratic ones. Look at Turkey, India, the Philippines, or even the United States. In fact, if I was a US expert, I might try to tell a story where the last two decades of the 20th century saw a fusion of money and party politics that led to a steady erosion of American political institutions by the early 21st century. Existing norms began to give way, bipartisan compromise, actually having a federal budget, Senate use rules regarding the use of the filibuster. Ideology closed down. There was a turn against immigration and free trade. There was a slide towards alternative mechanisms of governance. Uh, direct communication over Twitter, the use of vaguely defined leadership groups, the cult of personality over experience, and the purge of the, both the heads of the domestic security services as well as, yesterday, the diplomatic corps. Naturally, there are crucial differences. In China, what's taking place is, the top, is a top-down process driven by Xi Jinping and those around him rather than a bottom-up one. But make no mistake, the risk of this are just as severe, if not more so, than in the United States. Because if you, like me, are concerned by what you, the trends you see here in the United States, I think you have to ask yourself, what happens when that political erosion, or you know, their own process of political erosion, takes place in a country like China, where the entire institutional political architecture is of much more recent vintage, and the history of severe political turbulence is much closer in time. And that's why I think what is happening is so risky. Because I think once you start pulling these things apart, underlying problems that plagued the pre-reform era start pushing themselves, almost zombie-like, back to the surface again. For example, local officials competing to exalt the top leader, breakdown in channels of information to the top of the system as people begin increasingly unwilling to reflect back negative information, efforts to spread party controls into areas from which they've retreated in the 1980s, see what's happening in academia and culture, an erosion in the technocratic capabilities of the state, 
more vicious internal score settling within the party elite as norms continue to break down. With that, I would just flag some of the official language, accusing Bo Xilai, Zhou Yongkong, and Sun Zhengsai of plotting a coup. All of that spells trouble. In the short term, I think it bodes for a much more hardline, personalized authoritarian state. But in the longer term, I think it's a recipe for revival of internal political instability, instability that many observers had thought was dead and buried since the beginning of the reform era. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. That was, uh, I think, a terrific summary of, of what's going on in the book. Uh, the book obviously is a heck of a lot more detailed than, than that was. What about all the good that's coming out? You don't kind of, you know, there was a story in yesterday's New York Times about the way China has dealt with PMI 2.5, and it's been a, an enormous success, and probably the, it's a professor from the University of Chicago um, who's an environmental expert and said, we've probably seen in four years an expansion of lifespan anywhere in Beijing from 2.5 years to Shijiazhuang, uh, 4.5 years. How do you account for kind of the good things? Absolutely. So I would say there's a little bit of that. And it's not totally, but it's you know, just it, you're right that it's not there. There's, there's an alternative focus of the book. And the way I would explain it is when you're trying to I'm sure there's somebody out there who could write the history of the Trump era by saying, well, you know, there was uh, some interesting things that happened with corporate re repatriation of profits under the recent tax act. And then there were these other developments that took place. But I think if you're really, I have a trouble doing that when what I'm looking at looks to me to be the breakdown, A, major secular shifts that sort of shift out what we thought were the norm, was the way things worked since the early 80s, and a breakdown of those those core political institutions that you know party leaders themselves had set up because they were worried about what might happen. So you know, I yes, there's lots of interesting things happen, but this is the core stuff, and I feel like it's now but beginning. Some of, some of those norms were terrible. The immunity that Politburo members and then standing committees committee members had from prosecution is a terrible norm. It means they could be as corrupt as hell and the government would never go after them. Why is that not a good thing that it's been broken rather than a bad thing? Absolutely. If you told me that what was happening was that this was a situation where you were getting a sort of a non-politicized judiciary that was taking the place and sort of beginning to sort of deal, if, if it's sort of, you know, throwing out, you know, we throw out this person so that we, that just doesn't seem to me to be a story of, its, of how it's building towards anything. It's just one group throwing another group out. But it was a bad norm. Well, but what's the next one? What's it? So, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, that, I mean, sort of, I, mean I understand some people think, well, you know, Xi Dada is great. And, you know, maybe, you know, if he concentrates more power in, the, in his own hands, everything will turn out great. But I just, with, 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 the, with the particular background of what China's coming out of, I can't just say, well, yeah, you know, he's going to make everything okay. Talk about some of the dark scenario. You, you made brief reference to it, but talk about some of the dark right. scenarios that you kind of think are possible right. as a result of this. this right. So, I mean, wreck. I'll tell you sort of the, the short-term dark one and the one I'm really worried about, which, again, we haven't seen yet, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm worried. So the short-term thing I'm worried about is exactly what I alluded to at the end, which is I, I think as this these shifts begin to go through, I think you're going to see an erosion of the technocratic capacities of the state. You're also going to see, you know, more repression directed at the, the public interest lawyers and all these other groups in society. But to those two, those two, those are going to be two elements that are going to go through. And that's going to just be the slow deterioration of, you know, as these information channels begin to freeze up, I think you're not going to get good decision making in the short term. And I think the state's going to become increasingly more repressive in the in the short term but and in some ways that's like okay that might be a slow shift compared to what's you know that that be a slow steady change in what we've got going on the thing i'm really worried about the sort of much deeper thing is that in addition to everything we were talking about and here about the political things there are real latent social splits that have blown up over the course of the re reform period there is there is you know now China's wealth gap is, you know, just as great as the United States. 
Uh, you're seeing, um, uh, you know, real serious issues. Take a look at what's happening with the, you know, migrants being driven out of Beijing. There, there are splits within China that exist that in some ways haven't fully gotten mobilized. I mean, in some ways, because the party is in control, it throws a, everything's on freeze. But what worries me is that, does that always stay the same? Does that always happen? Or at some point, can you imagine a situation in which those latent tensions in, within society somehow get activated, either unintentionally because something happens or intentionally because somebody wants to play with them for a particular reason? And that's the, you know, those are, those are two of the you know, negative scenarios that I begin to play out in the, in the book. Ambassador Platt and I have been around for a long time, watching this for a long time, and we have seen many cycles in political liberalization then you know we saw democracy wall when i first lived in beijing in 1979 uh, we saw jingshan wu uh, the spiritual pollution campaign we saw june 4th we've seen cycles of tightening and relaxing tightening and relaxing what's to say this is not another cycle when's the last time you saw a lifetime leader in china the, but i don't think that's one, you know, as we talked about before, when did the United States officially put in term limits? How many years old was the United States when we put in term limits? We were about 180 years old when we amended our Constitution to put in term limits. Um, Franklin Roosevelt saw a crisis. Obviously, World War II was imminent. Um, American involvement was imminent, and he saw a crisis. It, it's not the right decision. But is it an understandable decision in the context of, you know, those who were dealing in China saw corruption as a cancer eating away at the government? And I think anybody, I mean, it was just rampant. And to kind of try and get control of that in some way has required major changes, and it may have required, he may see it as enough of a crisis that he needs to stay around for, you know, 15 or 20 years. Right, and I mean, it's not like I'm saying that that's, I mean, I would completely agree that within that particular ecological environment, I think that's, but I'm not sure that that's a choice where it just, then it automatically gets reversed. I think there are going to be other implications as a result of that that are going to continue to play out, and unfortunately, I think that keeps leading the system backwards. Except he will, someday he will step down. Either God's will or, or uh, he will decide he's done enough. And then what happens? Yeah, that's going to be the question. People are waiting to figure that out. I'm asking you. Well, certainly didn't look. I mean, look at the last ten years of like you know Mao's life. That I mean that there are problems. This is happening. It's not just look. It's not just China. But the, you know you know decaying. The 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 the. If we were having this conversation a decade ago, and we were talking about the party, we'd be stressing how different it was from a range of other personalized authoritarian regimes. We'd be saying, well, look, China is not like you know, Saddam Hussein or or these other kind where there's an individual person. It's all centered around. We would have said. China is a party elite. They've got these technocratic norms that raise people up. I mean, we, we've had we had these conversations earlier. The problem is, don't compare it to democracy or anything. Just compare it with itself. And once you start comparing with itself, a you start thinking things are changing, and b you start thinking it's changing in a direction that was specifically the one that was worrying party leaders themselves when they were like, "What's happening?" That's the relevant. It's not comparing it with, you know, it's it's you, you don't want to be trying a comparison with Roosevelt. I mean, it's different. That's such a very different institutional fabric of the two societies. China's becoming, you're arguing China's becoming more closed. How is that consistent with the percentage of foreign educated members of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, which has just that, as opposed to most things in China which are cyclical, that is just linearly going up, where it's now, I think, slightly over 20 percent. Right. And most of them were educated in the United States. Sure. So, 
Where's the closing? Uh, well, I mean, certainly. I mean, first, I'm not sure that simply having the foreign education automatically does that. I think, you know, it's interesting. Well, it certainly to, opens your eyes to what's going on outside. How many Saudi princes were sort of educated abroad? <laughs> I mean, there's like, you know, I'm not sure the uh, foreign education itself isn't somehow magically change people's minds. In fact, it can sort of do something different. But I will flag one thing that I think <laughs> is interesting that people should watch for, which is the foreign, the foreign student flow abroad. I think that's an interesting one because that's actually, that I think is, that's sort of a question. Can that continue? I do think with these ideological shifts, at some point, somebody starts to think, hmm, is this an issue? And so I'm, that's, that's actually, if you're looking for like little canaries in the coal mine, I'm watching for that as something, at, you know, does something shift in that front one way or the other? I mean, if we see a reduction in Chinese students. Yeah, I've had some students tell me that, for example, the, the a foreign degree is no longer necessarily a net positive if you're trying to go into party you know, into party organizations. It's like it starts to become a black mark against you. And again, I, look, I need I need something more con consistent for I'd say, hey, this is, but I, I, people have told me this the, was a the, shift. The data on the 19th Party Congress stands in contrast to that statement. In other That's words, high level. Of, I'm curious what's going on at the lower level. Well, they've worked their way up from the lower well, level. They worked their way up in an earlier era in the 80s and 90s when it was a positive. 90s. That's not, yeah. Yeah. Nick, did you want to add something? Yes. Um, this is the first book I've ever read before I came to the book party. <laughs> and I did so because I was drawn into it, and also I couldn't get it online because it's British hmm. publication. Uh, and I have to say, I was taken with the general thesis. I was very struck in the early 2000s, late 90s, by the statement of one of the major party theorists who said, in order for the party to stay in power, it has to give up power. And that was the, the truth during the period that you describe as institutionalization. I think now it's, the pendulum has swung in the other direction. And I think there's a, the, the, the thing that to me is the most sinister is the uh, application of modern technology to people, people-to-people -people control. AI, um, eye recognition, all of that stuff, which is now being practiced in Xinjiang, but that's the test bed for the rest of the country. And I'm curious as to your view as to whether the Chinese people are gonna put up with that. I mean, you can have a party committee in your company, but when you have somebody who's judging whether you can travel or buy things or whatever it is from your social credit rating, that's another. And all this fuss about the lady with her eye roll suggests that, well, you know, people are skeptical. Right. I mean, that's, I think, is an interesting, I think that's, that's another key question going forward. I mentioned that sort of the, one of the key things about the reform era, look, China, it's a one-party authoritarian state, but the late, starting in the 90s, 80, 80s going forward, the party gradually backed out of people's individual lives. I mean, most of us who have friends in China, I mean, they're not, they're not really focused on these grand matter, matters of state, but there's this expectation that the government and the party just do stuff, and I'm here, and this is, I'm leading my life. I think you're right that one of the trajectories going forward is that the party is going to begin to try to push its way back into private lives. I mean, I would describe that it was, you know, first pushing into the legal spectrum, then more and more into the media, and then now it's, you know, civil society. But I think at some point it's going to start, you know, it really is starting to get back into a much more personal space. And, and what happens then? I mean, you have a generation of people who, you know, this wasn't what they thought things were. Do they become cowed? Do they, what happens? And I, I, that's where I just don't have an answer for, I don't know. I think the party is kind of moving in that direction, but what happens when that starts to meet with social expectations? I'm, they're absolutely, I don't think the party at any, is there is going to allow any organized opposition. And so I sense sort of a conflict there going forward. Can I just make one more comment? Sure. Throughout this period where you, right. we have uh, sensed the tightening, tightening political power and control. The question has plagued me, which is, what is Xi Jinping worried about? What is the party afraid of? And that's a key question. My answer is, 
from the people I know is it, it's and, and it, it's the answer to why he hasn't named anybody in you know the sixth generation the seventh generation it's the younger generation doesn't really care about the party right they leave their lives the party doesn't bother them they are happy with that right. and this is where i mean this is where i can start putting my real nightmare situations out in a situation in which faced with that particular conflict place faced with that problem somebody in the party starts to begin to try to manipulate society and steer sort of maneuver those latent conflicts and pitting one group against another i don't know was it over issues of class is it over issues of nationality but there's there's a latent tension built up in society and i could almost see the possibility that somebody starts to play with that and that would be something i'd be very worried about but i don't know i think the one the Chinese have an expression, once bitten by a snake, afraid of a rope. And you, you, I think you have to think back to who Xi Jinping is. And, you know, he was, uh, had an incredible life up till when he, you know, 12 years old. And then, you know, the son of a vice premier and then was cast out into effectively the wilderness when he was, you know, Xiafang even before the, the beginning of the Cultural Revolution and ended up having a very tough time being able to, to come back. And that experience from being the son of a vice premier to being out in the poorest areas of China forever is imprinted on his psyche. And when he see thing, sees things that I think that we might view as ordinary and not that threatening, he sees them as much more threatening. I think because of where he came from, it's, it's um, I think it's, he sees things as, as threatening. I always joke, you know, I came of age during the war in Vietnam, you know, as incredibly anti-war, fundamentally against what the U.S. government was doing in its projection of force in, in Southeast Asia. And to this day, when you talk to me about U.S. projection of force, I still think back to Vietnam. I don't, haven't, it still is the basis for the way I think about it. And my experience was minor compared to what Xi Jinping experienced as a youth. So that effect on me is great. Can you imagine what the effect is on Xi Jinping? So I think doesn't mean we should accept it, but it certainly means we need to have more understanding of it. Bill. My name is Larry Bridwell. I have a lot of uh, Chinese students in the MBA program at Pace University. And I was struck by Evan Osno's book, Age of Ambition, where he emphasized the potential of Chinese students learning English and reading things in the English-speaking world. And I'm curious as to what your forecast would be as these 20 and 30 year olds that have these educations in literature in the English language, what kind of impact is that gonna have on the future of China? Well, I mean, I think, I think there, that's a very good, I think that's a very good question going forward. But the, I mean, so we see, I think often if we're in the States, we see the Chinese students who are coming abroad for, for, for education. Recognize that there's also lots of students who don't manage to come abroad, and there's a cleavage within Chinese society along that line. So, for example, you know, when I'm in China and I sort of talk to people who are like, you're, they're, they're trying to go up the academic ladder and they're attempting to, uh, you know, get the professor, the, the junk, the lecturer position at a, at, a, at a Chinese school, they're faced with the situation where, you know, the foreign, the the person, the, the, the Chinese student who managed to go abroad to get the PhD at some low tier, you know, American school is coming back and competing with them. They may have gone to Redmond University. They managed to sort of, you know, a high ranked Chinese school. And they and the, the, China, the foreign students are both competing for the same position. I think the point is there is that there's a lot of tension within the system itself where yes there are you know there's these folks who are having you know foreign experience but that doesn't automatically translate to well they just sort of you know spread gospel like their experience abroad you know additionally i would one other flag flag one other thing which is that i think some students who come abroad and if they're 
if Americans, if American schools are in the situation of sort of over-enrolling Chinese students and not providing them with services, they can often end up in essentially ghetto-like conditions where they feel they're not treated seriously by American teachers, they have limited contact, they don't really end up getting to practice English, and that can actually sort of lead to more like a heightening of national sentiment. So yes, I mean, I agree that, you know, experience, you know, one would think, oh, experience abroad is always a good thing, but it can play in many different ways. And so I just don't know long term how that how that plays out. I think you got different you know, different people take different things from it. But I would just say that I, I don't think it's an automatic thing. No, more people come abroad, therefore, somehow, this just automatically leads to the opening of China. I hope, I mean, I would hope, but I uh, Hi, Carl. Yes, congratulations on the book. It's been, uh, we've had lunches occasionally over the last uh, four or five years since I moved to New York, and it's great to see uh, this finally, this come into to life. Um, I had a question about, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Mark Frazier. Uh, I'm from the New School, and I also work at the India-China Institute, which is at the New School. Uh, I'm out hello as well. Um, so the, the, this is a question, getting back to your, your back and forth with Steve a little bit, and the question about institutions and, and deinstitutionalization and overall governance effectiveness. And the, the, the kind of the subtitle of the book, which is about all of this is going to undermine China's rise. And so if part of China's rise it, it, during the reform era was, you know, that they got institutions right in the sense of, you know, maybe four things. Um, clear criteria for promotion of local cadres, local officials, you know, technical over ideology, the, the old experts versus reds debate where expertise is valued over, over redness. Um, decentralization, so allowing uh, these local officials uh, to, you know, engage in some experimentation to do things that they think will work locally, uh, not always have to, you know, within limits, have to abide by national policies. And then maybe fourth, more or less effective job of monitoring these officials. Of course, this is where the corruption comes in. So um, I guess the question is, you know, based on those characteristics of institutionalization, are we seeing in the, the era you're talking about, uh, you know, th these uh, criteria for promotion changing, uh, you know, reds being promoted over experts, uh, recentralization, one could, you know, clearly I think you make the argument for that. Uh, monitoring, though, has gotten, you know, more strict, maybe in ways that, as Steve suggested, is, is actually on balance better uh, th overall. So. Um, you know, is this is this leading to China's uh, you know the, the end of China's rise as a, as a global economic power, let alone militarily and diplomatic? So one short answer is, I mean, I think you know, recognize that there's there's huge inertia built up based on over the course of three. I mean, there, you know, this it's not something that I mean could shift overnight, all, all, you know, all of a sudden, but. I think in the short term, you know, look, China's growing dramatically, you know, and for, for folks who are focused on the economic stuff, that thing is, that, that inertia is just going to go unless something happens with the debt. And I don't, you know, that's, I would watch that. Um, uh, so I think that what you're pointing to is, are, are the key things to be watching going forward, which is, do some of those other things begin to break down? So that criteria for, you know, evaluating officials. I mean, at some point, does it turn into a situation where, you know, loyalty and, you know, how frequently you've seen the most recent documentary, you know, praising Xi, does that start to become something that is now beginning to be escalated above, above other things? With respect to the, the monitoring, I mean, there's, I think on the monitoring front, it's also important to think, there's one thing to just, between having a, you know, a, 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 a politicized anti-corruption purge where you just like crack down really hard, blah, 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 versus having some sort of institutions that are actually separate from, you know, the problem in China is always who monitors the monitors. And so you say, oh, well, we're going to really monitor you really hard, but then who's watching the person who's monitoring? And that's a problem. So you vest more power in the, the, the equivalent of the CDIC. One thing I hear is now there's a lot of corruption in the CDIC because now they're the ones where the powers become you know, vested in the disciplinary guys, and so those are the people you try to buy off. So do you actually start to have effective monitoring, or does the shutdown of some of those open press channels of some of those other things inhibit bottom-up 
efforts to sort of bring central attention to the actual problems. I don't know. I mean, I think that's the one of the things to watch going forward. The other two, I mean, succession norms at the top and not having purges left and right. I think those are two other key elements that were crucial to the political stability of the reform era. John Herman, I'm a partner here at Dorsey and Whitney. And I have, uh, I have two questions. First one is, um, how much of this do you see as uh, a personal uh, thing for Chi to be deciding, I want to hold on, as opposed to, I'm doing this for the, for the purpose? And, and uh, you, know, you could even say, for the patriotic purpose of the betterment of China. And without my doing it, without holding on to this power, things are gonna go south. And secondly, how is all of this actually having an, an effect upon, uh, upon the economics of, uh, of, of China and how productive it's, it's gonna be? Because I'm not sure I see the link there and why it necessarily flows that it's going to be less. Right. So just let me take the second point first. Recognize that although this talk was focused particularly on the political dimension of what's taking place, the book has both an economic and an ideological element as well. I just didn't Some of those shifts, those aren't tied to what's going on politically. Oh, they're, they're loosely. There's, there's some link. But for example, the economic slowdown, which is regardless of if you just took apart, you know, let's not pay attention to sort of the political shifts. Let's just say, is this a fundamental shift from what's taking place over the last, you know, the decades from the, you know, 80s to 2000? Yes, China's slowing down. The optimists are going to say it's just turning into Japan and Taiwan. Even if that happens, even if that's the positive thing, this is still fundamentally different. You're going to face a much older population, the pension battles that are going to bake, they're going to break out. If you want to look at look at like Illinois and, you know, Hartford, Connecticut and sort of think of those local government battles over like, you know, people's pension plans. Now start playing that stuff out in another 5 or 10 years in a in a much larger country that's going to be encountering these problems. That is a China is moving from an age in which you had lots of resources to address issues to one in which it's going to be much more constrained. I'm worried about that with respect to the political stuff because I think that's precisely the situation where you know, you're going to see secularly those things begin to blow up at the same time as these political norms become a lot more unclear and what the heck happens to the country in that situation. Uh, with respect to the first question, oh, personal versus, um, personal versus, um, uh, I, in some ways I sort of think, you know, I think, I actually sort of think he's a true believer. I think he thinks that this is, I need to do this. And, you know, I believe, and, you know, right now I think this is the only way that I, I, I have to take this role in order to save China, you know. Nobody was man enough to stand up in the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, you know, so I, I do not want China to go down that route. So the only way to go forward is to do exactly this. The trick is, is, you know, does that, do you believe in a long term that that does? That starts, you know, it's Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, he just, you know, steps or dies. And, you know, that, or do you think that there's more distressing historical parallels that could blow up when, you know, after another 20 years or so, you start to think I'm, everything is associated with me. I, look. I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's Chiang Kai, you know, Jiang Jingguo, you know, Taiwan, but who knows? Chris. Uh, thank you. My name is Chris Merck. I'm with APCO Worldwide. You know, one of the most interesting things about the collective leadership that Deng Xiaoping put in place was not necessarily that the topmost leader retired, but that everybody beneath him retired, so that every 10 years, approximately half the members of the Central Committee left and were replaced by a younger group of people who had come up through the government and, and party bureaucracy. So that that was a much more dramatic generational change than occurs in any American presidential election, for example. Uh, and it was one of the ways in which uh, uh, there was a continual flow of new, new blood coming into the system, which was one of the explicit aims that Deng Xiaoping had. Has there been any discussion that you're aware of of how this change is going to impact central committee members? Or have you, what is your expectation in that sense? I haven't done on that level. I haven't seen any specific statistical stuff. I think that's another thing to be thinking of going forward, precisely because that's, that's the, you know, we, we know at the Politburo Standing Committee level, we can sort of see that the people who are in there right now are not going to be, you know, there's been no indication of the turnover that would lead to somebody to replace Xi. 
So I think the next level to think of, in, you know, the removal of folks like Sun Jung Sai or interesting suggestion of we're not going to get now below that level at the central committee level, what might happen? And that I, I just don't know. I will flag one thing, which I think is interesting. Let's take a look at the role of Wang Qishan. I mean, now he is, you know, again, the narrative of the reform era would have been we're look, Deng Xiaoping sort of ruled. He, you know, late 80s, early 90s, him and the, the retired elite were governing from behind the stage. But this was, and Jiang Zemin to a certain extent, but you could have told the story where that trajectory that you were talking about and you're moving towards the party institutions becoming more real and real and turnover. Is, is, is that Wang Qishan serving on as a non-voting member of the state, of the Politburo Standing Committee and sort of kind of emerging, it's him and Xi Jinping, you know, is, is now, is it really much more personalized and that whether or not you're actually a standing committee member maybe doesn't matter as much, that's something to watch going forward in the future. And I, and I, and I think you're also right to be flagging the what's the level down below that. Thank you. Thank you for the talk. Uh, this is Di Wang, a PhD candidate in sociology at UW Medicine. Um, um, you mentioned a little bit about uh, the uh, the states getting back into the private light, and in your book, you provide a lot of nuanced analysis of the institution of governance. So I was wondering, how do you think about like family as one of the institution of governance in China, um, because of so for example, I'm from China, and then for my parents' generation, if you want to get married, you need to petition and get them permission from your work unit, that way. But now for the younger generation, it would be ridiculous for us. And two years ago, we have the first anti-domestic violence law, but recently, feminist voices, uh, alternative media was banned. So it seems a back and forth issue for the Chinese government in terms of how to think about family, maybe how to think about gender. So I want to hear your, more, your opinion on how the institution of governance, whether you think family as an institution of governance. Right, that is a really interesting question, and that's actually one of the areas. I don't specialize in, in feminist issues, so I don't pretend to have any special knowledge on this, but I think it's, for folks who are interested in this, I think this is a really, particularly on that question of private lives, I think this is something to really watch going forward. And recognize that you've got two different shifts, again, one is this political shift, the ideological shift back towards a more traditionalist notion. You think back, remember where China was coming from in the, uh, you know, the revolutionary history of the party itself, you know, uh, breakdown of, you know, tearing down the social barriers, overturning social norms, um, you know, standing more on the side of feminism in the, in the, in the at least in the, you know, the, in the, in the earlier part of the, uh, of the Chinese, uh, Chinese party experience. But there has now been, an, particularly with the shift back towards tradition, that means the party is beginning to sort of embrace traditional culture in new ways. And they're really just, and it's not, again, not, this isn't just feminism, but it's also, it's embracing it across the board. But that ha overlaps specifically with this because now, wait a minute, does the, what's the message from the party with regard to family? And I think there's a fairly clear one that's starting to be developed. Family's good and we want more of it. And this contributes to social harmony. And then we'll get into the birth issue in a second. That's the political shift. The secular shift that's taking place is you've got some major demographic problems that are blowing up. I mean, China is now, if you thought J Japan, do the, get the graphs out for like the demographic projections, you know, what Japan went through, and then compare what China's facing. That's gonna be aging, oh, what's, I had it in my head. Uh, it's like going to go up from 12 or 15% in, in 2010 to like the over 60 population by 2030 is gonna hit 25 percent by 2030, and then I forget what it is. But the, the dramatic shift goes up right now. This is we're in the period of this rapid aging of the society, and that's creating again pressure on pensions. It's going to cre create pressure on uh, who takes care of the elderly. You can't look at those questions without starting to have a question of what's the role of women. Now think about this: one-child policy was removed. Okay, that was supposed to sort of lead to a massive bump in, didn't really. Does the state, if you were a policy planner somewhere in the bowels of the Chinese state, would you begin to be thinking about how do we bump up the fertility rate? Do you start thinking first about a range of soft measures? How do we incentivize births? And of course, if you're in that policy planning mode, you think about incentives. You think about you know, encouraging dating on you know, the, the party youth league stuff, which they're doing. 
but then you begin to think think about the one-child policy itself where it came from. Could you begin to start to ramp up those incentives? And I think that's what you're running into on the feminist side. I think that combination of those secular trends with the n new narrative is starting to lead the state into a directive where, direction where they really are now, how do we deal with those young unmarried women and how do we get them to have more babies? And look, that'll be the question. And again, it's a, look, these questions come up in a range of different societies. In China, it happens to be a one-party authoritarian state. And so I think the discussion and the measures that are going to be loose, it's not going to be the handmaid, handmaid, handmaid's tale overnight. I don't think that's the case. But I think that you're going to see more pressure beginning to build up on women. And that'll be an area where the private life issue is going to start to blow up first. Thank you so much for the uh, insight, um, Yan Chen. My question is how sh do you think you know, uh, the outside world or, or the US uh, should get prepared um, in this uh, grim uh, future? Because um, you know, we used to hope that um, the economic integration of China will, will you know, change it to more like the outside world, but you know, giving all this up backward. So uh, what do you think you know, the outside world can deal with it because uh, today's China is different from the Mao era. You know, the Chinese people were undergoing so much pain, but the outside world can kind of, you know, immune from it. But now with all this integration, it's totally different. I mean, I think that's a, that's an excellent question, and uh, I mean, I think at the end of the day, this the future of China is going to be decided by Chinese people themselves. It's not going to be decided by outsiders. It's going to be decided by Chinese people, citizens, but also people within the state apparatus. And so, I mean, that that's the hard thing is that I'm not sure this you know any country, particularly a country as large as China, it's not something that like foreigners just make something happen if we don't like it. You know, I think that uh, you know my hope in the long run is that you know look, these are real risks and. China, you know, people, many people in China realize where, you know, where we came from, and hopefully they say, we don't want to go back there. And so my hope in the long run is that enough people, both in society and in the state itself, start to say, is this a really good idea, and should we be doing something different? But I mean, I wish I could tell a more positive story, but, you know, the term limits, lifetime, you know, we just, it's, I'm, I'm just very worried about this going forward. But hopefully, I mean, you know, if Chinese people themselves are worried, this will filter up and stuff will, I don't know, but yeah. What, so what should U.S. policy be if the dark scenario is as you portray? Well, I mean, I, I think that, I think there are key, a couple key things. One, I think we have to adhere to our own, own liberal values. I think that's a crucial thing. I think if we start to go down the direction of, you know, strong, you know, pivot back to nationalist discourse and ethnocentric narratives. I, mean, I just think that's, I think that's normatively bad for our country, but I think it does, it, you know, it, it, it fuels stuff abroad as well. So I think the most important thing is we've got to, you know, we've got to stay true to our own values here. Um, and I would, yeah, that's, I, I think that's the, the key point that I would make. I've got a couple others in the book, but that's, that's the key one. Uh, since Deng Xiaoping set up the two-term limit, uh, China has... identify yourself if you Yeah, know. it's Susan from China Business News. Uh, since Deng Xiaoping set up the two-term limit, uh, China has two peaceful transfer of power uh, from Deng to Jiang and from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao. But now the tradition uh, was broken. Do you think the next transfer of power will be what will be? I have no, I have no idea, and that's one of the things that worries me. Is that you know, I think before, you know, a year, a year ago, or, or you know, prior to that, we could we could sort of tell like, well, you know, this is happening, but at a minimum, we know, ten years, and then now, that's a lot. There's a lot more uncertainty, and that's uncertainty about a core political issue going forward, and we didn't have that uncertainty before, and that that's one of the things that worries me so I just I just don't know what the what happens and I think that's that's sort of you can sense that you know beginning to permeate into my the background of yeah my fear last question right right here oops yeah okay. thank you um, we have the same you know I identify myself as uh, Sean Xiao and a uh, professor, uh, law professor, okay, from China. I'm, I'm getting the title. Actually, I have the same career with you. What I'm teaching American laws in China. You and get touch with Chinese law in China. Uh, the, my question is, how you can deduct this kind of you know and conclusion for the end of the reform? End of the reform. This is very interesting to me. 
because you have the different mind city with us. Yeah, you have the your man, man, your mind city. This is uh, totally different to the Chinese tradition. So actually, I'm not saying I totally agree with the, the you know constitutions amendments, but I think that uh, you didn't know actually what things in China, what a system they operation. I use myself for the you know government, Shanghai municipal government. I know how complicated you cannot imagine. Thank you. So I mean, I would say that one just with respect to the question you were saying is it how can I conclude at the end of reform in China? Actually, I don't say it's the end of reform. I say it's the end of the reform era, and the reform era post 1978 had three things: rapid economic development, a certain degree of ideological openness to the outside, and partial political institutionalization. You can, we can sort of disagree about like you know whether what's happening now is good or bad, but all three of those things are now fundamentally different. It's I mean that's just it's just not I mean that's just the fact of what's taking place. And so at the minimum level we can sort of say that's different. I mean it's it's just no longer the same thing as earlier. And then we can continue. I mean now look I mean some people will say that you know you know Xi Jinping maybe we need a 30 year 40 year you know term of it. You could sort of I can I could sort of understand people saying I have a different view about what should be happening. But the key thing of like. This is now no longer the same thing as earlier. It's that's it's true. It's just happening. Sadly, we've come to the bewitching hour. I need to end the program, but this has certainly been a lively discussion. The book is available outside, and the author is here to sign. But thank you. Oh, it's inside now. So thank you so much. Thank Carl. you very much. Great.